0: All right, well, as many of you may have guessed from the scripture reading and the big red banner behind me, uh, we are back in the Gospel of John today. So why don't you turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Uh, the Gospel of John, much like the other Gospels, and really all of the scriptures, the totality of the Bible is all about Jesus. But the focus of chapter 7 is more specifically about his identity. And it's filled with these questions directed towards Jesus. You see, the people of that time, they want to know. Can this Jesus be the Christ? Is this Jesus, this man who's standing in front of us, is this the Savior? Is he the long-awaited king? And if he isn't any of those things, who is he? They want to know. And so today, uh, we're going to just hopefully help answer that question uh, by simply considering three questions that are asked of Jesus in the middle of this scene. Three questions today that we're going to go over. Where did Jesus go to school? (laughs) Where is Jesus from? And where is Jesus going? And what we're going to find is that there's a simple answer to each of those questions. Actually, the answer is the same every single time. Um, A lot was revealed about Jesus on this particular day, and so it's certainly worth our time and attention this morning. So let's just jump right into the text. We just don't have the time. We're doing baptisms today. We're really excited about that, by the way. Uh, Are you excited for baptisms? Yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) yeah. So I'm going to not rush the sermon, but I'm looking forward to getting up there. Okay. Uh, Let's jump into the text. This is John chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Uh, follow along with me if you can. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. If you weren't with us two weeks ago when we started working through John chapter 7, um, let me remind you, we are, or just inform you, uh, we, we find ourselves uh, in the middle of this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of Booths. It's this big eight-day festival that happens every single year in Jerusalem. And so the city at this time would just be packed with people. Every male was required to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be there for this feast. And so you can just imagine this place is filled with people. There's tents all about the city, all around the temple. There's this celebratory air about this place. Trumpets are blasting. People are shouting good food, good fellowship. They're all there to remember the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. That's the time that we're in as we enter into this text. We're in Jerusalem, in the middle of this festival, and we learn here that Jesus makes his way into the temple, and he starts to teach. And this is what the text says. The Jews there marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So we see here the first question directed towards Jesus, and it's kind of part one of of today. And the question is, where did Jesus go to school? Okay? That's what they want to know. How can this individual be teaching this way when he didn't study? Um, he didn't attend one of our academies, any of our universities. Where did Jesus go to school? Um, where did he learn all of these amazing things? Now, you notice in the text, at least here, that John doesn't tell us what Jesus was teaching. Not yet. Okay, we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But at this point, all we know is that the people are stunned, right? They are in shock. And for those of us who know Jesus, who have a relationship with him, we can understand this, I think. I mean, can you, could you imagine listening or being present to one of Jesus's teachings? Could you imagine that, right? You'd throw me out of here faster than you could think, right? Yeah. I mean, just honestly, it gives me chills just thinking about it sitting at his feet, learning from him. See, we're told here that the people that day, in that day, had never heard anything like Jesus. Matthew tells us this as well in his gospel, that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished teaching there, that the crowds, it says, were astonished because he taught with so much authority. Other than that, though, he was also just really, really different. See, What was happening here was Jesus' teaching actually brought about a certain freshness. I had really never thought about this until I deeply studied this week, and I was just kind of nerding out on this. Because what you have to understand is that what was common in that day was for teachers or the rabbis to just cite and quote other rabbis. That's what a good teaching session would look like. They would stand in front of their students, and they would quote other rabbis. Such and such, such a person said this, and this person said this, and this person said this, and this person says this, this, person says this, this about the scriptures. Close the book. Done. Right? The teachers in that day were not original in their content, nor did they accept or praise originality. Rather, again, you were commended by how well you knew other people's teachings, and then how well you could recite it. There's a lot of memorization that goes into that. But now we see Jesus here, and Jesus doesn't do that, not at all. Right? He didn't need to cite any sources, because he was just speaking pure heavenly truth. So the people are just amazed by this, which is why they want to know who is behind this guy's learning. Where did he get his training? Who taught him? these things. See, this was the culture. Every teacher of that day attached themselves to another teacher. It was necessary. So who taught Jesus? Well, thankfully, Jesus makes that really, really clear, uh, starting in four parts, starting with the source of his knowledge. Look at verse 16, the source of his knowledge. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me Jesus is saying here very plainly, clearly, impactfully, significantly, my teaching is divine. My source is not earthly. I did not learn from a rabbi like all of you. Rather, I was sent by my father, and actually I learned from him. Or we might just say that Jesus' diploma said heaven on it. A pretty impressive diploma, right? Heaven. His diploma was divine. And of course, that's significant for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons why this matters is because what Jesus is saying is that when you listen to me, when you hear me and my words, you're actually hearing and listening to the voice of God. That's what he's telling the people that day. And let's understand, for a Jewish listener, even that phrase there, he sent me, matters. It's impactful, particularly for a teacher. See, all true teachers, all true rabbis, not only did they have another teacher that they looked to or recited and quoted, all true rabbis were also always commissioned. They were authorized to teach the word. We see that The biblical pattern of this, even with the Apostle Paul, who is discipling Timothy, and what does he say to Timothy? He says, what I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm now passing on to you, and I want you to teach others who will teach others. he lays hands on Timothy, commissions him, sends sends him to teach. There's this commissioning that takes place as Paul is leaving Ephesus and passes the church there to Timothy. And now Jesus is saying, I was sent, I was commissioned by the Father himself. He is the one who authorized me to be here and to teach you. My teaching is directly from him. My source is from heaven. And I don't think I really need to say this, um, but just in case, I'll say it anyway, (laughs) But Jesus' words here are not an excuse for us not to be schooled and for us not to be studied in the Word. Well, Jesus didn't do it, so I'm supposed to be like Jesus, right? Forget that Bible. I can just, you know. No, Jesus was the exception here, right? You and I are not Jesus, (laughs) and we all probably need a weekly reminder of that. We are not Jesus. We need all the help that we can get as Pastor Levi reminded us last week. We need all the help that we can get to understand the scriptures and to teach it to others, which is partly my responsibility for you. So we see Jesus' source of knowledge is the Father. And then second, we notice here his students, and this is where I think it becomes really relevant to our lives. Verse 17, he says, "'If anyone's will is to do God's will,' he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So we see here, Jesus puts this pretty plainly, that there's a condition to learning here. There's a condition to learning. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, in other words, if you have a desire to do God's will, you'll have understanding. That's the condition. And I think that this is a really striking passage of scripture it to be honest it left me thinking quite a bit i was stuck here for a little bit because it doesn't fit necessarily with my personality because understand what this is saying jesus is actually saying here that right willing is the foundation of right knowing pastor john piper says about this verse he was stuck here as well apparently (laughs) He says, Jesus' words here seem to make life more complicated, more mysterious, and certainly less under my control, less rationalistic. Why? Because with these words, the intellectual task of knowing truth suddenly becomes a moral and spiritual task. Do you see that? I'll say it more simply. What Piper is saying here is that willing and wanting are the keys to knowing. Willing and wanting are the keys to knowing. So do you want to learn? You're here in this place. I want to learn. I want to know Jesus more. I want to know the scriptures. There's good news today. You can. It's just a question of your want. It's a question of your desire. That's what Jesus is saying. Knowing truth, knowing Jesus is about having the heart of the psalmist who will say things like, I delight, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law, therefore, is in my heart. You see what this means? It means that learning is not fundamentally an intellectual assent. It's not fundamentally an intellectual issue. It's an issue of your heart. Those who delight in God's will... Who desire God's will, who long for God's will, will learn from him. And to be honest, I think we all understand this at our core. Right? We know this. Right? A lot of you are teachers. You know this. You have students. It's about desire. It's about want, <laughs> willingness. Right? You and I will learn the things that we care about. We learn the things that we are motivated to learn. Right? Think about it. It's the guy who has no idea how to cook. He has no desire to cook. He is content with his mama's cooking, right? All his meals, he's good with it, no desire. But then he gets a girlfriend, and suddenly he finds himself on YouTube, learning how to sous vide chicken and marinate vegetables, right? Some of the guys, you just put your head down. You know what I mean. It's the girl who doesn't care about learning foreign languages at all in school. Then suddenly, one day, someone shows her a K-pop video. (laughs) She falls in love and then suddenly finds herself learning Korean in hopes to someday meet one of those lead singers. You learn what you want to learn. We learn when we are motivated to learn. We learn when we desire to learn and Jesus says those who understand me those who really know me those who get who I am and what I am saying are those who have a passion and a heart after God those who have a true desire to know him you see that the people's problem with Jesus again wasn't about their intellect it was about their heart Their hearts needed to be changed. They weren't seeing clearly because they actually didn't want to see clearly. That's what Jesus is saying. And the same is true for us. In order for us to truly see Jesus today, to truly see and understand him, we actually have to want this and be willing to accept whatever he says. So we see Jesus' source, heaven, We see his students, those who have a desire for God's will. And then we see the characteristics of this marvelous, miraculous, spectacular teaching, characteristics of his teaching, which I believe are best defined with two words, selfless and truthful. Jesus' teaching was selfless, it was truthful. This is verse 18 in our text, verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What we see Jesus doing here is, once again, in a different way, setting himself apart from the other teachers, particularly false teachers here, or falsely motivated teachers. See, a false teacher is a person who is self-appointed, Their message is self-originating, and their motive is self-glorifying. It's an easy way for you to to identify a false teacher. They are self-appointed, self-originating, and they are self-glorifying. But a true teacher, one who's really after the heart of God, his will, they are appointed by God, they teach God's word, and they do it only for the glory of God. And this is the problem with the religious teachers of Jesus' day. Jesus told them in John chapter 5, verse 44, he said, you guys want glory from one another. That's your problem. Right? That's why you're missing the mark. That's why you, again, you can't see me because you're after your own glory. You don't desire me, right? You desire your own self, like interest in gains. That's your problem. And now Jesus here." is modeling the opposite for them and for us. He is actually here deflecting glory and giving it back to the Father. It's an incredible model for us. And that's, again, what solid, healthy teachers, preachers do. They do not accept glory for themselves. And they do not seek glory for themselves. It's not an easy task to do, by the way. But Jesus shows us the way. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. He writes this. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, not a self-originating message, but oracles of God, the truths of God's word, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus. It's a great outline for anyone who seeks to teach in any capacity. God provides the message. God empowers the messenger so that God gets the glory. It's selfless teaching, which comes out of a selfless teacher. And that certainly defines Jesus. He also said in verse 18 that what he is teaching is true. You see that there? He says that there is no falsehood in him. And Jesus says this again in contrast to the Jewish leaders who were not teaching correctly. They were not properly assessing or sifting through the scriptures. And consequently, what was going on is that they were not actually applying the scriptures rightly. And so, he says in verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? It's a yikes moment, okay, in John's gospel. Yikes, right? This is a direct shot at these guys. It's extremely harsh. See, the Jews, we know particularly the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they prided themselves in having the law, but in also being gatekeepers of that law. We know the law, we have the law, we make sure everyone's following the law. And so Jesus says to them, good for you. You have the law, but you don't follow it. Congratulations. And then he asks them directly. By the way, they don't know that he knows this. He says, why do you seek to kill me? His point is, his point is, how can you say that you love God, love people, follow the commandments, follow the law, when you are right now seeking to kill an innocent man? See the hypocrisy there. And the crowd responds to Jesus. The crowd answers, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Because they don't know. <laughs> the crowd at the Feast is not up to speed at what was going in and around Jesus' life. They don't know that the religious leaders were seeking to kill him yet. So their response is, You're crazy. Basically, how dare you call out our leaders? How dare you call out our teachers, our rabbis? No one's seeking to kill you. What are you talking about? You must have a demon. Jesus has heard those words before, by the way. Heard a lot, actually. You have a demon. And so Jesus responds, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. That's another shot at them, by the way. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There's a lot here in this text, but hopefully I can make it simple enough for us this morning. Jesus is going back to John chapter 5. If you weren't here with us at that time, in John chapter 5, something really significant takes place there. It's one of the signs in John's gospel. He heals this paralyzed man at a pool. No problem in that, necessarily, but the problem is that he does it on the Sabbath. You remember that occasion? Jesus heals this man who has not been able to walk for decades. And the Jewish leaders we know are furious about that reality, about that fact. Why? Because in their interpretation, in their view of the law, how they applied the law, they said, you were not allowed to work, which included... Healing. On the Sabbath day. On the day of rest. The Jewish day of rest. And so Jesus says here to the crowd, I do one work. In other words, he's saying, I did that one healing. And you all marvel at it. By the way, we think of marvel in the positive, right? Like marvel, like, you know, the superhero. Marvel, right? Astonished, wow. No, that's not this. Marvel here is the negative sense of things. He's saying, you're offended, right? I did one work and you're offended by it, is what he's saying. You're offended by what I, what I did. What I've said in regards to the Sabbath. And then forget the moral reasoning here just for a minute, the emotional side of things. Actually, Jesus hits them academically here. Hits them theologically. He shows them that they're hypocrites. He says... Our fathers, he says, our fathers, he's talking about Abraham, by the way, because Abraham's the one who gave circumcision, but they gave the credit to Moses. So that's why he says, you say Moses, it was our fathers, it's a shot at them, even you don't get that right, he's saying. Our fathers, Abraham, gave us circumcision, and you're willing to do that ritual on the Sabbath. What's he saying there? What's the deal? We know in Israel It was the law that when a male child became eight days old, even if it was on the Sabbath day, right, you would circumcise. And so he's saying, you do that. The eighth day comes, your child is born, what do you do? You circumcise, right? By the way, I keep saying that word. If you don't know what circumcision is, look it up for yourself, okay? Move on. The point is, the Jews made an exception to their own rule. They had no problem overriding the Sabbath to perform the circumcision ritual. They believed, and I believe that they were right in this part, they believed that they were justified in doing that. God will understand. It's about the heart of the law. You right, see where this is going. So Jesus says to them, let me ask you a question. If you have no problem making an exception for doing that, why in the world do all of you have a problem with me healing someone completely on the Sabbath? Right, it makes no sense. Which is why he says, you're not judging with right judgment. That's what he's saying. You're not assessing the scriptures correctly. He's really saying, you're false teachers. What's the point, though? These leaders and teachers were not, again, were not really concerned with the truth. They weren't really concerned with God's heart for people. They weren't really concerned with God's will, with God's desires. They were more concerned with keeping up a system that they had built, which gave them power, authority, and glory. And because that is now being threatened by Jesus, they want Jesus dead. See what's going on here. Jesus comes to these people and says, listen, I studied in heaven. My teacher, my source is God the Father. My teaching is pure. It is wise. It is authoritative. It is true. Why? Because my teaching is selfless and my teaching is all about the glory of God. Second question that's asked of Jesus or about Jesus that day is where is Jesus from? So where where did Jesus go to school? Heaven. Where is Jesus from? You see where we're going. This is verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know? It's like a secret. Really know that this is the Christ, that this is the Messiah? As we study through John's gospel, a good way to think about this book, and I probably should have mentioned this back in John 1, but I didn't. I saved it for now because I think we're continuing to see these repeated themes. But a good way to think of this book is that John's gospel, unlike the other's gospels, it's, it's, it's much like a spiral staircase. It's a good way to think of John's gospel. Because what happens is, as you read through John, what seems to be taking place is that we're just going around and around with these same themes. Over and over and over again. Yet at the same time, sort of masterfully, poetically, as John takes us through the gospel, we're not just going around and around. We're also getting new development, and we keep going higher and higher, unveiling who this Jesus is. So here the people are questioning Jesus' origin. They want to know where he's from. By the way, it's been an issue before. It's been an issue before. We dealt with it before. It's also addressed in John chapter 1. The crowd is wondering, are there people who are secretly believing in Jesus as the Messiah? Why else would he be allowed to teach like this? Did they know something we don't know, is what they're asking. There's a lot of confusion taking place in Israel at this time, in the city of Jerusalem. So they say in verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, the Messiah, no one will know where he comes from. So what's going on? Now, we have to understand that at this time, there were some teachings, some traditions that were prominent around Israel, around Jerusalem, amongst the schools of that day, these teachings floating around about the Messiah. And one of the things people were saying is that the Messiah would appear both suddenly and mysteriously when he came. That people wouldn't know where the Messiah came from when he comes in glory in this spectacular fashion, which, by the way, is not actually true. But they started teaching that. That teaching is floating around, that the Savior would come in this sort of grandiose and spectacular way. And so, there is this group of people highlighted here in John's Gospel who are, the best way to think of it, they are rejecting the commonness of Jesus. That guy's too common to be the Messiah, right? There's nothing grand about him. There's nothing spectacular about him. They're saying, this guy comes from like podunk, wherever, right? Small town, nowhere. He's a woodworker's son. This can't be the one that we've been waiting for. The Messiah is supposed to be great, That's what we're seeing here in this context. And I absolutely love, I love how Jesus addresses this issue. Because listen, we know this, Right? Jesus knew the word inside and out, right? He could have easily defended himself here. He could have turned to Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, opened it up and said, hey guys, uh, yeah, teachers of the law, it's right here. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. And where was I born? Bethlehem. Ta-da, it's me, right? He could have said that, right? But instead of doing that, he actually takes it a step further. He never plays their game. He always takes things higher because what he does is he doesn't talk about his earthly origin. He talks about his divine origin here. And really, he blows their minds with this. Look at what he says. This is his response. So Jesus proclaimed, by the way, proclaimed as he taught in the temple, Jesus here is very, being very forward, very aggressive in his teaching. We don't see this typically from Jesus. This is unusual, Now, he's usually very meek, mild, or he came very humbly, or he taught small groups of people and crowds as he traveled, not here. He's in front of the temple, in the temple, and he is basically shouting out this truth. He says, "'You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him.'" And he sent me. Have any of you in this room um, ever done one of those DNA tests? Like the antrustancestry.com thing? Like you can see your family history. It was given to me as a Christmas gift a while back. <laughs> you basically like spit in this tube. Seriously. And you send it off to these like data people or science... I don't even know who they send it to. And apparently... They analyze your your DNA, and they tell you where you're from, and a lot of times, it's really surprising, right? I never knew I had Scottish in me, so I took that test. There you go. Thought it was all Irish, pretty much. Pretty close, though, Scottish, Irish, you know. Not too many surprises. Jesus says to these people that day, guys, uh, I got a surprise for you. I'm not who you think I am. I'm not just the guy who grew up in Nazareth. I'm not just the one who was born in Bethlehem. No, I come from the Father. And I know him intimately. That's the language here. There's intimacy here. And we talked about this earlier in John, but understand that what Jesus is doing here is actually claiming, I'll use a theological term, sorry, but it's necessary. He's claiming pre-existence. Okay? Meaning that He existed before anyone or anything else. That's what he's doing here. That's pretty significant, right? (laughs) No one else could ever claim this. But this, this is what we, as the body of Christ, this is what we believe. We believe, Galatians 4.4, which says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. God sent his Son. So Jesus, how old are you? Well, on my mother's side, I'm 30. But on my father's side, I'm eternal. <laughs> All right, listen, there will never be another Jesus. He is not one of many options. He is the one and only. Because he was the only and one son sent to earth by God the Father. 1 well, verses 30 and 31 we see there's further division in the crowd. There's this continual stirring around Jesus. And so it says, so they were seeking to arrest him. Isn't that ironic? The crowd's like, who's seeking to kill you, arrest you? You have a demon. And then like, so they were seeking to arrest him. (laughs) Then it says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Bottom line here, we've said this probably two or three times in John's gospel. Another theme in our staircase. Basically, John wants us to know we're being reminded again that Jesus is in control of his own life. He determines when he'll be arrested, he's going to determine when he'll die on the cross. That's up to him. He'll be arrested on his own terms, his own plan, in the Father's will. Yet, many of the people believed in him. I don't love that translation, if I'm being trans- honest with you. Better way to say that, many were open to him. It's different Because it says, many believed in him, but then look, they ask a question. So they're open to him, they're curious about him. And then they ask the question. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So again, they don't fully believe They don't fully trust. They're just open. They're saying, this guy's done a lot. He's taught quite a bit. Will the Christ do more than this guy? Some are open to Jesus. They're starting to put the pieces together. Others now want to inflict direct harm on Jesus. But listen, what's very clear in John 7 is at this point now, no one ignores Jesus. No one ignores him. Look, when the the light of the world comes into darkness, it always creates a reaction. Light always creates a reaction. And here, the light has come now into the world clearly. He's declared him to be that. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And many are repelled by him. They scatter from him while others are now being drawn to him. The people want to know, where is this man from? And Jesus plainly tells them, I'm from heaven. I was schooled there. I'm from there. And then finally, we see this question in our text today. Question three: Where is Jesus going? I bet you know the answer. Heaven. If things weren't intense before, they really heat up now. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Here we're now officially introduced to the group of religious leaders who are going to arrest Jesus, kill Jesus. But Jesus once again tells them who's in charge. He just does it in a really indirect way. Jesus then said to these guys who he knows is plotting to arrest him, who will kill him. He knows the plan. He says to them, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I love this. Jesus, we're going to arrest you. His response, I'll be with you for a little longer. Then I'm going to him who sent me. You're going to try to find me again. You won't. Because where I'm going to be, you can't come. These are astonishing claims. And understand here that Jesus is talking about his death. He is saying that when he dies, when he dies, that he is going back to heaven to be with the Father. Essentially, he is telling them, I know your plan. I know what you're plotting to do. I know what you're gonna do. I'm gonna allow you to do it. (laughs) But my death and my departure is not the end. That's key. I will return back to the Father, back to where I came from. And then, like we've seen over and over and over and over again in John's gospel the people misunderstand Jesus. No surprise at this point, I think. They have an earthly understanding of what he just said. So they say to themselves, because of what Jesus just said, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. They're like, where is Jesus going to run away to? Where is he moving? Is he going to Rome? Is he going to move away from the Jewish lands, go more to the Greeks? No, it's not what Jesus is saying. Again, Jesus was talking about returning to his father. And by the way, we know this. This is exactly what Jesus did. The glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. When after his death on the cross, When after his bodily resurrection from the grave, he returned to God the Father. We see this in Acts chapter 2. You know, after that happened, after the ascension of Jesus, the early church applied the words of Psalm 24 to his ascension. They read Psalm 24 and they saw his ascension there they would read this psalm together. And as they read this psalm, they would think about Jesus going back. But more specifically, they thought about heaven welcoming Jesus back in. These words are so wonderful, so worshipful with that perspective. You'll never see Psalm 24 the same way again. Look at what it says there. Imagine now, this is heaven Welcoming back Jesus, the bodily resurrected Jesus. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O the ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. In other words, heaven, look, look, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Jesus Christ, the king of glory, would soon return to his place of glory. That's what he was telling the crowd that day. But they missed him. They missed him. They didn't embrace him like heaven. The question for us is really simple today. Have you? Have you embraced Jesus, the king of glory? One Puritan pastor said, Christ is a jewel worth more than a thousand worlds. As all know who have him. You get him, you get all. You miss him, you miss all. So do you have Jesus today? The people wanted to know, can this Jesus be the Messiah? Can he be the Christ? The answer, yes. So today, let's embrace the one who was sent by the Father, who came from heaven, who lived a sinless life, who obeyed the Father perfectly, who died a death that paid for our sins. Let's embrace the one who rose from the dead, who ascended back to the Father, and who promises to return again for those who believe in him and make all things new. Jesus said to the religious leaders that day, where I am going, you cannot come. But listen, that's not the end of the story because now, because now for those who belong to Jesus, when we die or when he returns, we will be where he is forever. As we close today, let me just ask you again, when you die or when Jesus returns, will you be with him? Will you be with him? Listen, I know I'll be there. I'll be with him. I pray you do too. Let's pray together.